0: This is the final episode of Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Episode 31. Every member of the Suicide Club known to be alive was called to Bedwood's house for a meeting to determine the result of the wager. It was a damp, dismal evening, the weather turning to chill and rain. Jeremy dressed in plaid galoshes and artful coat, unfurling his umbrella before stepping out into the downpour. Without a valet and uncertain of the security of his wealth, not to mention his status, he devised a plan that he felt suited his new circumstances. But would it work? He dared not guess, for this plan could be characterized as foolhardy. Outside his house stood a large covered cart, at the front of which sat a sodden driver, a single horse, the method of traction. Jeremy waved to the man. Ready, are you? Yes, sir, the man replied. It'll stop raining soon, I expect. Don't forget, one hour from now you leave here. One hour, sir. Sheremy nodded. I'll see you later then, at the agreed place. Yes, sir. Jeremy hurried along Fetter Lane, Fleet Street, then turned into Chancery Lane, whereupon a feeling of sadness overwhelmed him, and he found himself in tears. He paused, took a deep breath, then carried on. Gentleman Smythe met him at the top of the steps of Bedwood's house. Good evening, sir. You are well, I trust? Very well. What's on the menu tonight? Parboiled egg of flightless cuckoo, sir bought last year from the cloud jungles of Nepal and served on a bed of Tibetan grubs. Excellent. Jeremy ran up the steps to the dining room where he saw everybody that he expected. Lord Blackenor, Jwenefere, Franklin Spar-Turney, Grabian de Velvine, Cornucope and Eustacia, who, by special request of Lord Blackenor, had been allowed to present herself unbagged though she wore a headscarf low over her forehead. Am I late? he said with a grin. A muttered grumble was his reply. He glanced at Schwinnifer, then smiled and winked at her. She smiled back. He glanced at the front sash window to see it open just a fraction. Then he said, But where's Sir Hoseley? Lord Blackenor handed him a manila envelope, saying, "'This arrived for you. "'It carries both the monograms of Sir Hosley "'and of Yom Gravelspit.' "'Sheramy recognised the handwriting, "'so he ripped open the envelope, "'pulling out the single sheet within. "'It was, as he expected, a photogram. "'Standing on a footstool, "'he exhibited it to the assembled crowd. "'This image,' he said, "'was taken by Yom Gravelspit "'from the rooftop on Ludgate Hill. "'It shows myself.' Officer Murchison Volume of Scotland Yard, and Sir Hosley Fane. Can you all see? More mutters. Ladies and gentlemen, you can indeed see that Murchison and Sir Hosley are in cahoots, Sordington's raised to kill me. Yes, that's terrible enough, isn't it? But there's something more, something that will shock you to your core. We won't be seeing Sir Hosley ever again, because he is Jacques the Raper, Le Violaire, who stalked Whitechapel and murdered so many innocent night birds. The men of the Suicide Club gasped and murmured to each other, their faces showing how appalled they were. Estacia shook her head and lowered her gaze. Joinefier did nothing. Jeremy had already told her. One of our own number, what said. How grim that we should come to this. I shall pass on the information to the police. Jeremy nodded. And now, dear colleagues, ladies, I wish to begin my presentation concerning the wager. He paused for a sip of water glanced once again at Zwinevere, then took a deep breath. The three of us in this wager, four of us, including the esteemed Estacia Weatherby, who worked alongside her husband, gave ourselves the task of discovering the real nature of love. I can tell you in full truth, dear fellows, ladies, it's been a difficult journey for me. I was born into a family of lesser aristocracy, And, as is the way of such things, I joined a club of gentlemen when I was old enough. But for me, it had to be a special club. So I joined this one, the club attempting the most daring schemes, so that I might get about the world doing good for one and all. Or so I thought. For it transpires that we of the upper classes have rather neglected the lives, and indeed the livelihoods, of much of the population of London town specifically of women. And, yes, of the lower orders, too. I can tell you it gave me the greatest pleasure to see our Prime Minister yield to the demands of the Purleys, and all because he was a true Britisher who couldn't go back on his word. Ah, the irony. Get on with it, pantomile, Lord Blackenor muttered. Jeremy turned to him and replied, I'll take all the time I need, dear fellow. My wealth is at stake, do you remember? Lord Blackenor raised his gaze to the ceiling, but said nothing more. Jeremy sipped more water, then continued. Women have been treated abominably by us men. It's time for that to change. I wish here and now to declare my full support for the cause of suffering, led so marvellously by Lady Bedwoods. I've written to the Pankhursts to this effect already, "'in case you're wondering.' "'I can attest to this,' "'Schwinevere said.' Jeremy smiled at her. "'And so to love,' he paused, "'glanced up at the ceiling, "'then took another sip of water. "'I can sense you're all waiting for me,' "'he said. "'Could the Suicide Club change the world "'through this simple wager? "'Christianity, after all, "'changed the world because of one man, "'St. Paul.' Might I become a kind of St. Jeremy in years to come? No, said Franklin's bar attorney. Why, I agree with you, dear fellow, Jeremy said, and I thank you for saying that, for it allows me to present you the real nature of love. Then what is it? asked Lord Blackenor. Let's first ask why Franklin is correct in saying I won't become a St. Jeremy of love. It's because to do that, I have to use words. Words, my friend, such as the Bible utilizes. But love can't be captured in a net of words. No combination of words known to us, nor to any other man or woman who has ever existed, can describe love. Then this wager is pointless, Franklin said, a frown on his face. Ah, dear fellow, not at all because the true nature of love is action. It's not what we write that matters, it's not what we say, it's what we do. Actions, as has been observed on many a previous occasion, speak louder than words. And so, in conclusion, my dearest of colleagues, members of the Suicide Club, and ladies also, I present you my action, my deed. That is my offer to you, Lord Blackenor, in the matter of the wager. Cherami leapt down from the footstool and ran over to Jwenefier who seeing him stood up an expression of puzzlement on her face and Cherami took her hand and pulled her to the sash window where lay a miniature machinora constructed from a large Iranian tea tray in a bag of steaming moisture he pulled up the window allowing cold evening air into the chamber he waved to everybody most of them stood on their feet, eyes wide and mouths open, then pulled Schwinifere onto the tray, which promptly rose and passed beneath the window. Jeremy pulled Schwinifere to her knees and pushed down her head, ducking as the Machinora carried them outside the building. Then they sank to ground level, and Jeremy leapt off. Schwinifere followed suit. My darling, he said, uh, me, what are you doing? She replied. This is love, Schwinnifer. This is life. This is action. I've loved you for so many years, and now I'm proving it by deed. Will you elope with me? A man poverty stricken to an unknown future, and all for love? Poverty stricken? He shrugged. I have, by default, lost the wager, my darling. My action in spiriting you out of the building has made my claim, but at the same time ruined my chances. It is a paradox, much like love, in fact. Oh, Jeremy. She leaned forward and kissed him, and in that moment, though the rain poured down and he knew not what might happen next to him, he was the happiest man in the world. Xwenefier said, but... Where to now? Jeremy indicated the covered cart standing beside the pavement. In there lie all my worldly possessions that I took from my house in Garth Square. Leave behind the world of the aristocracy that you've so far known. Leave it, Trinafir, and come with me. I know a little place in Wales where we can be two ordinary people, living ordinary lives. She hesitated. The rain pelted down. Then she said, very well, you have convinced me. Charamie leapt upon the cart footplate, then pulled Schwynevere up, so that they sat side by side, cramped and somewhat damp beside the driver. To Wales, Charamie said, and freedom! Eustacia Weatherby watched Jeremy jump upon the Iranian tea-tray, pass with Lady Bedwoods through the open window, then vanish into the dark the night. She glanced at Cornucope, who sat, head in hand, beside her. ''Are you well?'' she asked him. He nodded. ''As well as can be expected, dearest one.'' ''Did that surprise you?'' He lowered his hand and looked at her. ''Yes, it did, of course it did.'' Pantomile is a man of spontaneity, which, we now see, is his undoing. He has lost the wager. Then the wager is ours to win, she observed. He managed a weak smile. Ever the practical one, he observed. The station nodded, waiting for Cornucope to turn away again, and when he did, She put her hand into her handbag and pushed the protective end off the syringe that lay there, raising it, shaking out the air bubbles, then jabbing it into his upper arm. She pulled back her hand at once, avoiding the response. Cornucope tapped his arm as if bitten by a gnat. He turned to glance at her, frowned, grunted, then turned away again. Lord Blackenor said, now it's your turn, Cornucope. Estacia stood up. I'll be making our claim on the wager, she said. Lord Blackenor also got to his feet. You? Yes, me. Lord Blackenor looked at Cornucope and said, Is this... Do you really need to ask him? Estacia interrupted. I may be a woman, and I'm not a member of the Suicide Club. "'but we've heard tonight a lot about the importance of women, "'not to mention the importance of the lower classes "'and, of course, foreigners such as myself. "'That is, if you call me a foreigner.' "'She glanced at her audience. "'None of them spoke. "'I'm a Britisher,' she continued, "'though I was born in Hindu, "'and the matter of Hindu is one close to my heart. "'Is this part of your presentation?' Lord Blackenor asked. I'd be grateful, Eustacia replied, if you could afford me the same courtesy you afforded Mr. Pantomile when he began his presentation. Lord Blackenor nodded, then shrugged. Very good, he said, with a sigh. At this, Eustacia said, Lord Blackenor, I know you are secretary of the Suicide Club and doubtless now the treasurer because you lack the input of Sir Hosley Fane. But I signed the wager alongside my husband and I have the right to make our presentation. I do not expect to be patronized. I do not expect to be mocked. And I do not expect to be endured. Do I make myself clear? Lord Blackenor nodded then looked away. Eustacia took a deep breath. She felt good. She glanced at Cornucope, no sign of his behaviour changing yet, then continued. Cornucope and I spoke much about the true nature of love during our adventures. We found the truth while dealing with Gandhi, Misanthrope, and others of the Hindu home rule movement. You see, gentlemen, we agree with Mr. Pantomile love cannot be described in mere words what then would you use Asked franklin your question is as pertinent as the others you put tonight estacia replied what can we use if words are no good she let the question hang in the air for a few moments still no sign of emotion from cornucope she had to time this right she continued in fact We did arrive at a form of words that we felt might encapsulate the truths of love. Cornucope spoke to them in a fit of passion, to Pysgod, the king of the underwater realm in Windsor Great Park, and they go as follows. From her handbag she took a sheet of paper that they had inscribed with Cornucope's words, and read, I would do anything for Eustacia, my most dear wife. Do you think love can be handed around like sweetmeats? It is a thing of the heart, of time and patience, a thing of giving and, your majesty, of taking, though it be in equal measure. It is the understanding of life, if you will, over time and with one other of merit. That is what he said. To this, Franklin replied, You have negated the validity of your premise since you have told us these words. Eustacia shook her head. "'On the contrary, Mr. Spartani, you have missed the important point.' "'What, then, is the important point?' "'That Cornucope spoke the words in a situation of stress, "'when he thought Piscod was going to take me away "'and make me queen of the underwater realm. "'He spoke in a fit of passion. He was emotional. "'For, you see, gentlemen, you men of this country "'suffer from a debilitating condition.' that my countryman Gandhi noticed. It so happened that Gandhi intended exploiting your crippling condition, but luckily, through the agency of me and my husband, and it must be said because of a sharp shooting policeman, he failed. Lord Blackenor stirred himself. Perhaps you should tell us the nature of this condition, he said. I will. It's the prelude to our claim on the wager. "'which I will make shortly. "'Cornucope, are you well?' "'Cornucope shook his head. <clears throat> uh, sir, I feel a little drunk.' "'Estatia raised her hands to calm the murmured hubbub. "'Gentlemen, silence, please. "'Cornucope is well. "'But very soon he will illustrate the nature of your debilitating condition.' "'What exactly is it?' "'Lord Blackenor insisted.' You are unemotional, Estatia replied. You can't express your true feelings. Whether those feelings be grief, joy, fear, or embarrassment, you keep them inside yourselves, held back by your stiff upper lip. But uh, that is the British way," Franklin protested. It's how we made our empire. Indeed it is, Estatia agreed. And many millions of people in the world are worse off because of that. Many millions of people, gentlemen of the Suicide Club, would be happier, indeed alive today, if you had the strength to express your emotions and not pretend they don't exist. For through emotions you express your humanity. But if you have no humanity, you can be humane. And if you are inhumane, you can build an empire on which the sun never sets, but in which the blood never dries." At this, Cornucope stood up and said, "'My dearest one, I feel warm towards you. "'Something is bubbling up inside of me.' "'Yes, Cornucope,' Eustacia said. "'I'm your wife, your dearest Eustacia.' "'Cornucope stumbled across the room, "'approaching her like a drunkard, "'then hugging her with all his might. "'I do so love you, dearest one,' he mumbled." Now there were tears pouring down his cheeks. Eustacia turned around as if dancing a waltz with him, so the men of the Suicide Club could see those tears. Some were disgusted, looking away, but a few she noticed grasped the meaning of what she had said. There were hints of tears in their eyes too. This, she told Lord Beckenham, is our presentation. We stand here, wordless, hugging one another. This is our claim on the wager. For this is true love, expressed by emotion alone. But I do not understand. I know you don't and you never will if you don't do the same with your own wife, with your children, Lord Blackenor, even with your friends. For if you can't treat them as they deserve to be treated, you are no man. But I am a man. Eustatia replied, If you are a full man, Lord Blackenor, then I request you do something for your country. The demands of Gandhi and misanthrop are blown to the four winds now that the Shiva emitter has been neutralized. But the demands of the people of Hindu remain valid. In fact, more violent leaders will emerge if you continue to dominate the country. Go to the prime minister, go to the foreign secretary, and explain that home rule is justified. "'Follow the example of the East End, soon to be an independent country, "'and allow the people of Indo to rule themselves.' "'I will do what I can, Mrs. Wetherby Eustacia smiled. "'That's what I hope you'll do,' she said. "'Velveen sat back in his comfortable chair. "'So far he had watched two presentations, both of which confused him. "'Lord Blackenor said, Now it's your turn, Velveen. Velveen sighed and stood up. It seemed to him that his old self was being shed like a snake sheds a skin, leaving him fresh, new but different. He said, Well, gentlemen, Mrs. Weatherby, my presentation does use words. I have thought long and hard about it and I have discussed the problem with many psychonauts, priests, monks, and indeed ordinary people of the world, and I have come to a conclusion. He hesitated. He felt tired, bereft. Yet he also felt a hint of a certain new strength that he'd never known before. And this, he suspected, was that strength imparted by the full experience of life. For, so far, he had lived as a child. He sighed, wiped a tear from his eye, then continued. Well, I should like to tell you something. From his pocket, he withdrew a copy of The Origin of Species. This book, written by Mr. Darwin of Shrewsbury, explains that different species evolved on our world by a process of natural selection. That process applies to us also. Like it or not, we evolved from apes. But we are different, eh? We have minds. We have minds that use words, Franklin said. Exactly, my friend. Words are how we communicate. You see, we all feel a certain sensation, do we not? A sensation that we all share a common human condition, that at the emotional or moral level we are equals. It is the feeling that human beings are drawn together because of our intrinsic nature, and so some structure... Some form of organisation has to regulate various of our actions, and this gentleman is what we call society. Social behaviour evolved because of the private nature of our minds. Society is a kind of regulator of myriad minds. We're with you so far, Lord Blackenaw commented, though his face told a different story. Velvine glanced at him. "'I shall come to you in due course, eh?' he said. After a pause, he continued. "'There exists, however, a dilemma in the experience of our lives. "'We, ourselves, are most vividly and continuously experienced. "'We know our own deeds and wishes our every idiosyncrasy and foible, "'feeling, thought, hope and desire. "'But no other human being, however close,' "'is experienced in this intimate manner, eh? "'There's always the impossibility of feeling precisely the same feelings as another, "'of having different thoughts, of remembering different experiences, "'in short, of being different people. "'This dilemma is resolved by the experienced of union.' "'What do you mean by union?' asked Franklin. "'Well, I mean love.' Our need for communication and our need for union are similar in the sense that they draw people together through society. But union has a more profound quality. Communication between people is an aspect of living, though it can in some cases be deep, as is the case demonstrated by Mrs. Weatherby, with emotion. But union does not have any aspect of chance. We do not live, as it were, casually creating union with others. Union has a different meaning. Union relates, as Marx pointed out, to the actual experience of the human condition, to the experience of living a human life. Union is the exchange of the experience of life, whereas communication is the exchange of information relating to life. Did you just say Marx? Lord Blackenor asked. "'I did say, Marx,' Velvine replied. "'But allow me to continue before you express your righteous shock, Blackenor, eh? "'As I was saying, union, by which I mean love, is the experience of understanding others. "'Union, indeed, is an inevitable part of life, because we simply have to understand others.' "'Love is inevitable, then?' Franklin asked. "'We are born,' Velvine replied without any knowledge of the world, and so we have to create our memories by learning about life. At least most psychonauts think so, Mr Young being the notable exception, eh? Love, therefore, was an inevitable consequence of our evolution from apes. What, then, is your wager presentation? Lord Blackenor asked. Velvin turned to face him. The purpose of love, Blackenor, is to facilitate the appearance of other human beings in our minds. It is our method of bringing other people, wholly independent of the self, as I have explained, into our minds, to be understood. The experience of love is the experience of union. Indeed, sir, loneliness is unbearable precisely because true understanding of the self and of life is inextricably bound up with the true understanding of others. I do not follow. Velvine nodded. I know you do not follow, because I know what you're really like, Blackenor. Love is indeed a paradoxical experience, eh? It preserves the integrity and independence of those involved. Love requires freedom to exist— for without freedom, Blackenor, why then would it be but a tie of necessity, eh? Love and freedom, an understanding, are therefore conceptual equivalents. Now, do you follow? No, I believe I never will. I also believe that, Velvine said with a sigh. You see, love is not blind, Blackenor. In fact, it is the very opposite, eh? "'Love gives us an improved experience of others, "'since it's the very experience of the truth of these others, "'not just the perception of some surface quality.' "'He paused. "'There was nothing more to say. "'Are you done?' asked Lord Blackenor. "'I am done, and you are done too, eh, "'because you do not love the workers you exploit in your terrible factories.' "'My what?' Velveen rounded upon the man. Did you not wonder who raided your factory in Grafton Place, eh? Lord Blackenor leapt to his feet, glancing in consternation at the others. What do you mean, Orchard died? Velveen laughed. Well, Black-a-Nor Developments, I suppose, which is private property, and where there is no admittance, at least to ordinary folk. You? You, Orchard Tide? I was the one who chased you and your flying fox to London Zoo. I was the one. And I was the one who saw you poison Bertrand Utterkin stone dead with a miniature crate. You're a murderer, Blackenor. Yes, it is true what you think about me. I have made the most radical breakthrough of all of us tonight. I am a Marxist. I reject utterly the aristocracy. "'I have seen your factory, Blackenor, "'and I've seen with my own eyes how you exploit your own kind, "'like the foul tyrant you are.' "'Lies!' Lord Blackenor cried. "'Gentlemen, this is all lies!' "'Velvine drew a deep breath to shout over the gathering clamour "'as every member of the club jumped to his feet. "'Estatia Weatherby, too, shock!' plain on her face. He yelled, "'Quiet! All of you! There will be time enough to investigate the methods and properties of Blackenor, eh? I claim the wager monies. I claim them, for I am correct, and so is Marx.' Lord Blackenor stood on the chair and also yelled, "'I am now the treasurer of the Suicide Club!' I say this to you all, there is no winner. None of you have proven your case. And so the money stays with me. And let that be an end to this wretched club forever and ever. With that, he uttered a spine-chilling scream and sprang for the door of the dining room. And he was never seen again. Epilogue. Velveen walked on his own down Chancery Lane eastward along Fleet Street then south along Newbridge Street to Blackfriars Bridge the Thames looked different indeed from end to end as far as he could see it was choked with hair that had washed down from north and south along storm drains where they were not choked down alleys gutters and along roads and passages, so that a thick layer covered the water. Upon this layer of hair, the people of London town had set up a fair. The Hair Fair, it was called. Hands in pockets, Velvine strolled along Blackfriars Pier, then stepped from a jetty onto the softly rolling surface. It was safe, he realized. A thousand people or more laughed upon the river, enjoying themselves without a care, children and dogs running this way and that, and there were hundreds of stalls to see. Velvine bought himself a toffee pear, played a few games of shover spong and threw coconuts at badly manufactured toy heads, featuring, amongst others, the visage of the Prime Minister and all of the Cabinet. Velveen laughed to himself. He knew now that he'd come through an experience that had made him an adult. His mother had beaten him down instead of encouraging him to grow. She had not loved him. His father, too, had not loved him. And because of that lack of love, Velveen knew he thought little of himself. But the truth, it appeared, was different. He was a good man. A man. Far from perfect, it was true, but a man who at the very least could say he knew what direction to grow in. Spong for your thoughts, said a voice to his side. He glanced over to see a young woman not three yards away, walking in his direction. She was slender, dark-haired, with brown eyes. Pretty, he decided, with a pleasant, if somewhat crooked, smile. (laughs) <laughs> for my thoughts eh he replied she approached him you seem very far away she said if that look in your eyes was anything to go by he smiled he liked her insouciance I am Velvine Orchardtide he said what is your name Nina Novemberist she said you are a forward gentleman aren't you "'asking a girl her name, so swift. "'Should we walk down to the fair, you and me? "'I'll let you buy me a toffee apple.' "'Well, actually, they're toffee pears,' he said. "'Not the ones down there. Come on, I'll show you.' "'He did as he was bid, following her. "'Toffee apples, eh?' he said with a grin. "'And are there toffee damsons also?' "'Nina laughed. "'Of course.' and toffee green gauges. A toffee green gauge? Eh, never. You are joshing me. I'd never do that. Why? I do declare. I had a toffee sprout just now. And so endeth the strange tale of hairy London. A supremely odd yet deeply rewarding experience. A novel of alternate reality London, a parody of the Victorian era. Search for Stephen Palmer Author, for info about him, and for the tenacious narrator who read all 96,750 words. Go to www.englishvoiceover.tv. Harry London the Podcast was produced and narrated by R. D. Watson. Music by kind permission of West One Music, Harry London the Novel, is published by Infinity Plus.